0: This is Ellen Weatherford
1: and Christian Weatherford
0: and we are the podcast that doesn't have a title yet because we're still working on it but this (laughs) is episode two we have yet to upload any of them so if you are listening to them in episode order and this is your second one I have great news because we have made some improvements first yeah we've made some housekeeping updates the first one is that we have intro music now which is, um, the track is called Adventuring. It is by Louis Zong off of his album B-Sides. And I'm really happy that now we have a little bit of musical incorporated into the um, podcast. I think it's going to sound great.
1: Yes, it's very nice.
0: We've also made some updates to our equipment. We have got some nice little boom arms here so that our microphones are isolated from the desk, and hopefully that's going to cut down on some of the noise distortion. Christian has also figured out how to silence the fan on his PC. Well,
1: silence is a strong word, but make it quieter, at least while it's cool.
0: Yeah, so we don't have to do so much noise reduction now, so hopefully that'll make the quality of our voices sound a little bit better. That's kind of our housekeeping updates, where, like I said in the last episode, this is a learning process. We're still learning how to record and make our make our sound good. So we are still If you're if you're working backwards and you're uh you have not listened to episode 1 yet, I have terrible news <laughs> and it is that episode 1 doesn't sound as good, but It's okay, because I thought our content
1: was good anyway. Yeah, such is the world of podcasting.
0: Yeah, so uh, we're still working on it. We're getting better every step of the way. Last episode, we talked about the American alligator and the Florida manatee, which were some local favorites of ours. We stayed pretty close to home for our first episode, but in this episode, we kind of went off on a different direction. We branched out a little bit. So um, since I went first last episode, Christian, how about you take the lead?
1: Oh, gladly. Gladly. So my friend for this episode is the electric eel.
0: I'm so excited.
1: (laughs) Uh, So right off the bat, let me just say the electric eel, not actually an eel.
0: Oh, well, okay then.
1: (laughs) Right? So it is considered what's called a knife fish.
0: A knife fish.
1: Yeah. So if you've ever seen an electric eel, you might understand why it belongs to that group called the knife fish, because it's very slender, almost cylindrical. And kind of its tail has an edged look about it because of its fin.
0: Oh, okay. That makes sense.
1: Yeah. But let me kind of get into the the meat of the electric eel real quick. Okay. So they grow to be about two meters long, which is six feet, seven inches. No way.
0: That is huge. (laughs) That's a
1: big one. (laughs) That's
0: way bigger than I thought it would be.
1: (laughs) And they grow to weigh about 20 kilograms or 44 pounds.
0: Oh, see, that's not as much as I would have expected it to weigh, being that big, but...
1: Yeah, I mean, think snake, right? Yeah, true. Yeah. Uh, so, where are they are found? So, they are found in the fresh waters of the Amazon and Orinoco River Basins of South America. Okay. Uh, specifically, floodplains, swamps, creeks, small rivers, coastal plains. So, typically, I think when people think of electric eel, they might think of how they're depicted in the media. So, you might be picturing what's actually an ocean eel, right? Yeah.
0: Very similar to a, a moray eel. Yeah,
1: so it's a very different animal, and also those live in the ocean. The, a lot of the times media will take that picture and just give them electricity coming off of them. So, so. forget
0: <laughs> what you thought you knew about the electric eel.
1: <laughs> so the taxonomic order, they belong to the gymnotiforms order.
0: Gymnotiforms. Yes. I don't even, I've never heard that word before. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, it's, it's a, it's an interesting word. I actually had to look up how to pronounce it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, like I mentioned, uh, despite its name, not actually an eel. So, the evolutionary relatives, so that order, the gymnotiforms, contains all the other knife fish. So, oh. there, there are other knife fish out there. And what's interesting about all these fish is that they all have some form of electrical ability, I'll, oh. I'll call it. <laughs> like
0: all knife fish do?
1: Yeah, but the thing is, most knife fish only have it to the extent where it's it's very low and it's mostly used for navigation. Uh, the electric eel is special in that it can be so strong as to do some other things, which I'll get into oh. shortly. Oh,
0: okay. <laughs> you know, um, I, I used to um, work at PetSmart and we sold very tiny little types of knife fish.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I didn't know that they had electrical properties. It's
1: very small in most of them, but... Oh. Uh, so, uh, the, the electric eel also belongs to its own genus, the Electrophorus. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So, let's get into our rating, shall we? Um, effectiveness, not surprisingly, I gave it a full 10 out of 10 for 10. effectiveness.
0: perfect score. All right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, I mentioned it, has, it can do a couple of things with its electricity. Uh, so, one, it can use it to locate prey. So very low voltages it can use to locate other things in the water. Okay. So that's very important because where they're found is usually murky, stagnant water.
0: Oh, I see. So they yes. don't have to re- rely on their yeah. eyesight so right.
1: much. Right, which is a good thing because if you've ever seen a picture of an electric eel, you'll notice their eyes are very small. Oh. Yeah.
0: I guess you wouldn't really have to have big eyes if you're, that's not what you're using to find your prey. Correct.
1: So anything it's seeing is probably very close to it.
0: Sure. It's got kind of a radar.
1: <laughs> Something like that, yeah. And its second use is to stun its prey. So once it has found its prey and it's nearby or even touching it, it'll discharge a higher voltage of, elect- of electricity to try and stun its prey.
0: That's what I. That's about what I expected. I guess I assumed the uh, the the electricity would be a combative. Yes, thing.
1: yes. Um, and then the third use is for self defense. So most animals would be deterred from a full strength shock from I an electric eel.
0: Definitely would. That's relatable.
1: Um, But larger animals probably won't die from it. So the electric eel can do a shock from 10 volts to 850 volts for about 2 milliseconds. So that's just for an instant. Yeah. So it's not usually fatal to adult humans, mainly because uh, the amount of electricity you would need to cause atrial fibrillation in the heart... Is to run an, a current of 700 milliamps for about 30 plus milliseconds. Oh, okay. So it really comes down to the duration of why it doesn't. It's not considered fatal to most humans.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Yeah, but still very painful. Yeah, I
0: definitely <laughs> wouldn't want
1: that. <laughs> um, so that electric shock is produced in three different organs that comprise about. I think I saw it was 80% of the eels mass.
0: Dang. They so, have really allocated all of their real yeah, estate. <laughs> so most of this
1: eel is used for this very one purpose.
0: It's really like a, a power plant that just yeah. lives in the water.
1: Yeah. And, um, you know, that you can find all sorts of details on how this works, uh, biologically and chemically, but it's a little bit beyond me. And also I think maybe this podcast for now, <laughs> But uh, those, it, has th- it has those three organs, and they're called the main organ, hunter's organ, and the sacs organ, or maybe it's sax organ, uh, S-A-C-H organ. And so those are the three things in its body that does that. Um, so what I f- what I did not know about electric heels going into this is they are obligate air breathers.
0: Oh, no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so most fish, of course, you know, they uh, you use gills to get oxygen from the water and into the bloodstream. But electric eels, they have to surface about every 10 minutes to, really? get, to get air.
0: Oh, my gosh. I've never in my <laughs> life seen, like, an eel surfacing to the water for right. any reason.
1: Right. So this is useful, though, for, for where they live. A lot of the times they're in very stagnant waters where the oxygen levels would be very low anyway. Sure. Uh, so this gives them a kind of a leg up on other things that might be living in there.
0: Oh, I see.
1: So, yeah, it has to go to the surface every 10 minutes, takes a breath. I read that about 80% of the oxygen that that its body gets comes from this method. I'm assuming maybe it's absorbing some oxygen from the water, but most of it's coming from air breathing. Uh, So that's why I gave it a 10 out of 10 for effectiveness. I thought it's pretty much the master of its environment.
0: Yeah, I mean, (laughs) (laughs) they're they're really killing it out there.
1: Uh ingenuity. You know, I thought I I thought I'd give a perfect score here too, but not really because it's it's not using external tools and I guess tricks to s- so 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 to say. It's mostly using what it has you know biologically sure. built inside of it. But still that's pretty impressive. So I gave it a seven out of ten for ingenuity. So like I mentioned, that biological design makes it a master of its environment and that it can use that weapon to deter much bigger threats, including humans. And indirectly, Twitter, which I will explain later. (laughs) (laughs) All
0: right, that's quite the cliffhanger, but I can't wait to circle back to that. It's a
1: fun little story. (laughs) Uh, But before that, uh, aesthetics. Uh, I give them a six out of ten. So you'd have to see a video to quite to understand this precisely. But the way they move is they have. An anal fin that kind of spans the majority of the length of their body. Sure. And it undulates to do, to move.
0: Oh, okay. So I have seen knife fish swim mm-hmm. in this way and it is really mesmerizing. Yeah. You know, it makes like sort of a, a wavy like shape that kind of flows down the body. Yeah. It is really cool to watch. It, it reminds
1: me of a bedsheet that you might be like flapping in the wind <laughs> or something.
0: <laughs> yeah, it I've seen this. It's very cool to watch. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, but go check it on the video uh, to see what I'm talking about. But uh, the next part of its aesthetics, it has very small eyes, like I mentioned earlier, and a round head. It has dark brown skin with a red belly, which makes me think of a piranha. Yeah, right. I don't which, like that thing. Which is interesting, because that's kind of, they would share the same spaces a lot, I mm-hmm. would think. <laughs>
0: yeah, that probably has something to do with the environment they're in, right? Right,
1: right. That seems it. like
0: a common color scheme for that area. Mm-hmm.
1: For sure, for sure. So, all combined, that comes out to an average of about 8 to 10.
0: That's not bad, that's a pretty yeah. good animal.
1: yeah. Uh, so here's some fun facts about our friend, the electric eel. Conservation status, least concern.
0: Oh, they're doing fine. Yeah. They're fine.
1: <laughs> yeah, which is interesting. Um.
0: I guess they're not, they're probably not being hunted for very much, so right? So,
1: they're pretty sought after for aquariums and uh, private collections, but <laughs> here's the problem. So, one, you would have to find them in pretty remote locations. Sure. In the wild, and two, very difficult to capture i would imagine so for scientific purposes they usually capture these by trying to tire it out like making making it use all of its shock ability i guess because it it is technically a chemical reaction within their bodies and they will eventually use it up and we'll have to wait until they can do it again but it takes some time so you're basically having to tire out tire out the electric eel before you actually go in the water to grab it
0: sure I can't imagine trying to keep one of these in an aquarium because of how big you said they get. You said they get up to like six-ish feet.
1: Yeah. So it's when they are in aquariums, they're very big exhibits uh, because of that size.
0: Oh, I guess you probably meant aquariums like facilities i was thinking when you meant aquariums i thought you were talking about like people's tanks that they keep in their houses
1: well i'm I'm sure if they're a very dedicated private collector they might have the space for it
0: man how big would your tank have to be i'm not sure that's a big one
1: another fun fact about these guys is how they reproduce Oh, boy. So the males will create a nest underwater out of its own saliva. Gross. Yes. <laughs> and then the female will lay up to 3,000 eggs in that That's nest. so many. Yeah. it's a lot of eggs. It's an interesting, interesting way to keep them all in one place. Mm-hmm. Now we have a celebrity electric eel in the oh. United States. At the Tennessee Aquarium. They have an electric eel that they've named Miguel Watson.
0: No. Yes.
1: <laughs> so Miguel's exhibit is hooked up to have these LEDs that will kind of give a visual representation of the shocks it's Miguel's giving off from time to time. Imagine like a, a boom box that's showing you intensity of sound. Oh, it's kind of like that. Oh, that's
0: pretty cool. So his
1: electric shocks aren't Powering it per se but it's just there's a device that's monitoring the electric shock coming through the water and then just representing it on this on a display that's really neat they also did the same thing to do um, an audio representation of that so they, <laughs> they hooked it up to a speaker um, so as it's sending off shocks you hear these slight pops and the more intense the electricity the more frequent the pops are and also the louder it is oh. yeah um, but here's the best part of all this they've also hooked up to the system so that when it does a powerful enough shock, it does an automated tweet <laughs> to the account at Electric Miguel. <laughs>
0: this is the Twitter thing you mentioned earlier? Yes. Oh, yes. man. So,
1: Miguel has his own Twitter feed.
0: Oh, no. Sweet.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, again, if you wanted to check, uh, check Miguel out on Twitter, it is at Electric Miguel
0: electric miguel oh i'm gonna go follow him right now that's adorable i
1: I did earlier and i was hoping you didn't see that and ruin my surprise but (laughs) i think we're good oh i love
0: him oh he's got his own little following that's got to be the world's only like electric eel with a sort of a presence a social media presence
1: but I, I, i strongly encourage everyone to maybe check out some youtube videos or what have you of electric eels very interesting animals I remember seeing one uh, where they hooked up electric eels in a in their aquarium to a Christmas tree, to where their their electric shocks were controlling the the color of the lights.
0: Oh, so it, was,
1: it was one of those kinds of lights that change color.
0: Oh wow, that's so cool! Yeah, so is this something that like? They are sending out frequent shocks, or is it... Yeah,
1: yeah. So the the, the low-voltage shocks are just a way for them to understand their environment, like what's around them. I see. And then the high-voltage shocks is when they're being fed, usually, or or excited over something.
0: Okay. I guess I had assumed that they weren't, like, always sending out electricity, that it was, like, an in-case-of-emergency thing.
1: So when they're sleeping or resting, they do not do any...
0: Oh. Yeah. Oh, that's kind of cute that they sleep.
1: <laughs> I hadn't thought about
0: that. When you think about fish, you don't think about them sleeping, right? Right. But oh, that's really cute. Yeah. I love them.
1: Yeah. So that's that's the electric eels.
0: You have recruited me as a fan.
1: <laughs> I am now
0: super into electric eels.
1: <laughs> Fantastic.
0: <laughs> They're great. Thank you, Christian. Oh,
1: no problem. All right, Ellen. Let's hear what uh, what your animal is for this episode.
0: I have for you the okapi. Ooh. Which I also had to look up how this is pronounced because my entire life I've been calling them okapi. Likewise, I've been saying it wrong, and so have you.
1: Well, <laughs> <laughs> it's okapi. But so
0: uh, the okapi. Uh, this is the okapia johnstoni. If you've never seen one before, this is this is a five foot or one and a half meter tall at the shoulder. Eight foot or two and a half meter long from the head to the base of the tail. So it's a kind of a a large animal. Yeah, they're a four-legged ungulate. Ungulate meaning that they have hooves. They do have cloven hooves, so that's similar to a sheep or a goat or a pig or something like that. Okay, this animal looks a lot like a horse. They're, they have the same sort of general structure of a horse, but I think they have much bigger ears and sort of a more slender face. They also have two horns on the top of their head. <laughs> kind of the most notable feature of the way that they look is that most of their body is a dark brown or a black color, but their legs have black and white horizontal stripes. Looks like a zebra. Oh, but... but so that's just on the legs. Right,
1: right. Um
0: more so on the back legs, but the front legs have them as well. Okay. So they have the black and white stripes like a zebra.
1: But is there is there any relationship there to zebras or is it just None a None whatsoever. Wow. None
0: whatsoever. So if you look at it just based on its shape and its pattern, you would probably assume that they were related to the zebra, but they're not. And I'll tell you in just a minute what they Ooh. are related to. These are solitary and very shy animals. They're extremely rare and extremely difficult to observe in the wild. (laughs) So it wasn't until just within the last 20 years or so that the first one was actually photographed in the wild. And it wasn't until about 100 years ago that scientists were even able to like classify it as a species. These are extremely shy animals. They're very hard to find. They also only live in a very specific place. They live in the Ituri Forest. This is a, a rainforest in the northeastern Democratic Republic of the Congo. Oh. So it's a rainforest. Right. So this, is, this is a, a rainforest <laughs> animal. Their, their taxonomic order is artiodactyla. So they're, they're cloven hoofed ungulates, like I said before. So this is, they have the same type of hooves as sheep or pigs or cows, not the hooves that you would expect of a horse or a zebra, where all of the weight is placed on one sort of toe. It's more like a, a sheep or a goat. How all of the weight is placed on these two toes right. that are that are together. So their family is Giraffidae. <laughs> they're actually a type of giraffe.
1: Whoa! Yeah. So
0: they are the closest living relative of the giraffe. They're uh, technically in the giraffe family. They're in the Giraffidae family. So they're um, sometimes people call them the forest giraffe or hmm. the zebra giraffe. Because of their stripes. So you might look at it and think it's a type of zebra, but it's actually a type of giraffe. Hmm. You can really see these similarities between the Okapi and the giraffe in the shape of the head. It has sort of the same face as proper giraffe. Giraffe proper, I suppose. (laughs) Sure, sure. They also have the same prehensile tongue that giraffes do, (laughs) which is very charming. They also have the horns that the giraffe has. Now, this is a special type of horn. It's called an ossicone. It's not made of bone tissue like most other horns are. When you see the the horns that are like antlers from a deer or an antelope, those are made of bone tissue. Hmm. Ossicones are not. They're made of hardened cartilage. And they're also covered in skin and fur. Oh, so whereas an, an antler would be just exposed bone, this is usually covered in um, skin and fur. And also, all giraffes have ossicones, but in okapis, only the males have them. Oh. The females don't have them. Um, they have—they just have little little bumps, little nubs where an ossicone would be. But huh. the male has a fully developed like horn coming out. Right, two of them. So you can see that when you look in the face of the Okapi, you can really see the similarity to the giraffe. But that's kind of where the similarities end if you're thinking about a giraffe. But there's good reason for this. So the giraffe lives out in the plains where there's just so much more room. They have room to grow, right? They have a lot more space to be tall and have really elongated limbs but the okapi lives in the rainforest right this is like densely forested habitat so they don't have as much room to grow tall so they have much shorter necks and limbs so that they can fit in the rainforest without bonking their head on the limbs and stuff hmm. makes sense for them to do that for where they live so they're a forest giraffe they're a, a yeah. giraffe but little it's, um,
1: a, it's an interesting example of I guess evolution, right?
0: Yeah. So that also makes sense why they have darker <laughs> fur and they're not that same like light yellow color that a lot of giraffes are. They're right. a, a darker brown. Um, so they're, they're just adapted for their environment
1: Yeah, And and I imagine the stripes help with camouflage in a a densely forested area.
0: Yeah. So I'll talk about camouflage, um, in a minute and the purpose of their black and white stripes that kind of are like the most identifying feature of them, I think. So first I'll talk about their effectiveness. I gave them a seven out of 10 for effectiveness, which is pretty good. One of their strongest attributes is their sense of hearing. So they do have, I mentioned that they have large ears. Something that's really cool about those ears is that they can rotate independently of each other. Oh. So on their own, like they can go in different directions. So they have really good range of hearing and they, they, they have very sensitive hearing so they can hear from very far away. So they're, they're hearing can alert them to threats from a distance. And so that combined with just how difficult their habitat is to access makes them so difficult to find. Because if you're getting close to one, they're, they're likely to run. So they were only recognized by European scientists in 1901. Hmm. They had kind of heard about them because the local natives knew about them. They called them the Ati. But they'd they'd only heard them described. They'd never actually seen one. So they actually were called the African unicorn for a while because of how hard they were to find. Oh, and also sometimes hunters would catch them in a trap. Um, They they would fall into pit traps. So you would sometimes find the body of one, but Hmm. they never actually saw one, like in the wild not really a lot of is known about what they even do in the wild, like Mm. their behavior and stuff, because they're just so hard to find and hard to observe because of how shy they are and how good their hearing is. They they can run. So, um, they're covered in a really dense velvety fur and it's a very oily fur that you can really see when you look at one, you can see how shiny they are. Mm -hmm. You know how like they just shine in the light. It's really beautiful. I think it looks great. So that uh, velvety, oily fur repels water and keeps them dry. Oh. So it's a water-wicking fur. Okay. It's it's perfect for living in the rainforest. They have those ossicones that I mentioned, but I couldn't find any information about what they're for. (laughs) (laughs) They don't use them to, like... They're not really for, like, self-defense... Right. They're herbivores. They don't hunt anything. Um, it seem, The the only thing I could find said that they're used to flank other males during mating season.
1: Oh, kind of like the giraffes. What giraffes oh, do, okay. yeah.
0: Okay. The, that just seems to be the only purpose that the ossicones really serve is to fight each other. So I did not think that that allowed the ossicones to contribute to a positive effectiveness like <laughs> score because they're just only used for fighting each other. I don't think that counts. Sure they're pretty good at running and hiding because that seems to be what they like to do best. They're pretty good at that. I did take a couple of points away for their vulnerability to ambush. So their primary predator is the leopard Mm. in the African forest. Okay. They're, that's kind of one of the only things that can take one of these down because they're, they're big, they're big animals. They're Mm -hmm. sometimes preyed on by servals that are much smaller, but the leopards are kind of, their biggest weakness, because the Okapi's hearing lets them hear threats that are moving on the ground, because it's dense underbrush, there's a lot of leaves and stuff, they can hear things moving in the brush and and run. The problem with that is that leopards spend most of their time up in the trees, and they're ambush predators, so they find a spot in the trees, and then they wait silently huh. so the okapi can't hear them coming
1: because well, they're not moving they're just
0: they're, they're they're still in the trees so the the leopard will will spend their time waiting in the tree they can see the okapi coming and then they can drop down on them from above mm. so the okapi i've heard people say that they're strong enough to to throw a leopard off but a problem is that okapis are solitary so they don't have a herd defense there there's no way they can't like rely on each other for protection. Babyocopies will stay in a nest for a while to avoid being ambushed by a leopard, but it seems like they don't really have a lot of defense against leopards, mm. their biggest predator. So I deducted some effectiveness points for that. So that's a 7 out of 10, which is still still pretty good. So for Ingenuity, I gave them a 7 out of 10 as well, because they're they're pretty good. They, I, I talked about their prehensile tongue earlier. That's a pretty cool feature. <laughs> I think that's really neat. It's so cool to watch too. Um, if you've seen giraffes, you've probably seen giraffes use this tongue as well. It's the same thing. It's that black purple tongue. Um, that's very, very strong and very long so that what what they use, the, it's the same as a giraffe. They They will wrap their tongue around a branch and then pull. So the tongue strips all of the buds and the leaves off of the branch
1: um, directly into their mouth. <laughs> yeah, just just
0: brings it's a straight shot. Like the 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 tongue is is really good for stripping buds and leaves, so it leaves the twigs behind, right? Oh, that's smart. So that's a really cool. It's really useful. It's also used for grooming. They can clean their hmm. eyes and clean their ears and.
1: When, when you say clean their eyes, do you, yeah. they're licking their eyeballs? Yeah, licking their eyeballs. Oh uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> they can clean themselves
0: with it. Um, so it's, it's really cool. That's,
1: we should keep these as the rainforest secrets. <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: a little gross, but I mean, if you've ever seen, uh, I, I've, I've got some pictures of the giraffe at our zoo, uh, picking his nose with his own tongue. Uh. <laughs> and they do that too. I mean, they got to groom, they got to clean yeah. that nose out, get yeah. those boogers. So, So, So yeah, I thought the prehensile tongue was pretty cool. Uh, Something that they do that is really neat is low frequency vocalizations, Hmm. which I also mentioned for the alligator. So this just seems to be a common thing. This was observed by the San Diego Zoo. Okapi communicate to each other with vocalizations that are so low pitched that humans and other predators can't hear it. Okay. So... Kind of like with the alligator, this is too low for a human to hear, but this also serves the additional purpose of being undetectable by other predators. Sneaky. Yeah, it's very sneaky. So researchers suggest that this is so that Okapi mothers and their babies can check in on each other and maintain contact while the mother's foraging for food. So it's a good way for mothers and babies to communicate without alerting predators to their location. So that the the baby o copy doesn't have to be like, "Hey guys, I'm over here, please attack me." (laughs) So that's pretty neat that they, and that was only recently discovered that they do that because it's so hard to monitor them. This is something that you can only like observe in in captivity. Yeah. Oh, we mentioned their camouflage earlier. So the black and white horizontal stripes on their legs give it a natural camouflage in partial sunlight. Okay. So imagine what the sunlight looks like when it's filtering in through a canopy of leaves and branches. Right. How it has that sort of partial, it's like partly bright but partly dark. It's very high contrast. The horizontal black and white stripes fit in really well to that. Okay. Yeah, they're, they're pretty hard to spot in that partial sunlight. But they also serve another purpose. Um, they're a visual cue to the babies. Really? So a baby okapi can more easily spot and follow its mother. So it's a, they call them follow me stripes.
1: Okay. So, so so is it a way for the baby to identify that okapi from other okapis? It or, could. Okay.
0: Because each Okapi's stripes are unique huh. to the individual. Okay. So so it could, but what it's more used for, since they are solitary animals, there's no risk of like them being like lost in a herd.
1: Or they start following a, a zebra around or
0: something. <laughs> well, zebras don't live here.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, that's true, that's true. <laughs> but,
0: but so the, they're follow-me stripes, so the baby can follow its mother more easily because it's following the, the bright black and white stripes. Oh,
1: yeah, I understand that. No, it's like a, okay.
0: a visual indicator. Um, but, yeah, so it, it's kind of like a thumbprint. Each each one's stripes are unique, so it's a, it's a good way to, to tell each other apart. So for the aesthetics, this is for me where the Okapi really shines. <laughs> the aesthetics, I gave it a 9 out of 10. This is a gorgeous animal. They're beautiful. They have that shiny, velvety fur. They've got the striking, they've got the, the, the really cool stripes. They have a really cute face. They do. The face is a lot like a horse, <laughs> but it's a little bit more, it has like a tapered nose it has really, really big fluffy ears, <laughs> huge ears that are just, they look soft. I've never touched one, but it looks soft yeah. to me. And I, I put down what I describe as kind eyes. Oh. Cause I think they have kind eyes. <laughs> they have a really nice little face. So overall, that gave me an average of 7.5 out of 10, Okay, um, which is pretty good. If we yeah. wanted to round up, we could and say it's an 8 out of 10. Yeah,
1: I did too. So, I mean, mine was close to a 7.5 too.
0: Oh, is, okay. Yeah. Well, we'll call it an 8 because okay. it's a good animal. Okay. So I have some some miscellaneous information about the Okapi that I found interesting. Their conservation status is endangered. Mm. They're not doing very, very well. They are heavily threatened by deforestation. So the Okapi Conservation Project describes the practice of destructive subsistence farming, which we know as slash and burn. Right. right. So this is practiced outside of demarcated agriculture in and around the reserve at the Ituri Forest. And a traditional reliance on bushmeat are chief among the factors.
1: Oh, no. Yeah, contributing
0: to this Okapi's kind of struggle. So... There's a lot of factors going into how rare the Okapi is, but there is an Okapi wildlife reserve. Hmm. So this is 13,700 square kilometers, which is 5,300 square miles of the Ituri forest that has been dedicated to preserving and protecting the habitat of the Okapi and other plant and animal life in the area there actually is a huge reserve that's set aside just for helping the Okapi. That's awesome. Yeah. So since the Okapi are super duper shy and kind of delicate, they're pretty fragile because they're very like adapted to this one specific place. They're kind of hard to transport. So you don't see very many of them in zoos. So there are only around 100 Okapis in AZA accredited zoos. The first one was the Bronx Zoo in 1937. They got their first okapi. So I did not realize that okapis were so sort of seldom seen because there are very many of them in Florida, right. like in the, in the Florida zoo sort of system. So just in Florida, we have okapis at Animal Kingdom, the Miami Zoo, Tampa's Lowry Park Zoo. The Jacksonville Zoo and the White Oak Conservation Center. Wow. That's a lot of places where you can find oak copies in Florida, which makes sense because I feel like Florida is probably a pretty close approximation of their natural environment, yeah, right? Yeah, it's a yeah. very like tropical sort of climate. It's hot, it's humid, it rains all the time probably very similar to what they're used to. Mm-hmm. So, we have seen okapi's many times. We've seen okapi's at the zoo. We've seen okapi's at Animal Kingdom. We've oh, just yeah. we've seen them all over the place. So, here's something really neat that is a kind of a local shout out. The Jacksonville Zoo's conservation and science manager, John Lucas, is also the president of the Okapi Conservation Project oh. that is like that maintains the okapi Reserve That's awesome. in in the Congo. So he's also the founding member and vice president of the Wildlife Conservation Network, and he's the president of the International Rhino Foundation. Wow! So he's got a lot going on. So uh, thanks for looking out for our okapi buddies, John Lucas of the Jacksonville Zoo. Ooh. So that I thought that was really cool. I've 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 seen okapis a lot around here, but I, I realized that probably. Maybe people that live in different parts of the country maybe have never seen an okapi before. Yeah. It's actually really common for people that live in the Democratic Republic of the Congo to have never seen an okapi. Wow, that's crazy. people that live where they live probably have never seen one. Wow. Like, you are way more likely to see one in a zoo than you are to, even if you went to where they live, you probably wouldn't see one.
1: Right. Because
0: they're just so hard to find. So, I was kind of disheartened to find that there wasn't a lot known about them but what we do know about them is really interesting. They're really fascinating animals. I think they're beautiful. And so I, I gave them an 8 out of 10. But they have a 10 out of 10, out of 10 in my heart. <laughs> this is a great animal. So I was, I was really happy yeah. to, to learn more about them. Yeah,
1: well, thank you, Ellen. I, I think I came, came away from this with a, with a newfound appreciation for the oak copy.
0: And I for the electric eel. <laughs> so we've made a lot of new friends today.
1: Yes, excellent.
0: Okay, so that's it for us today. We're going to wrap up. Uh, we, I want to thank Louis Zong for the use of his track Adventuring from his album B-Sides. Uh, he's a Burbank, California-based musician and illustrator who is very talented and has a lot of great music out there. You can check him out on Spotify or Bandcamp or whatever. He has very graciously allowed us to use his music for this podcast, and I think that's a, a great addition to our sound.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: That's all I got for today.
1: Awesome. Well, thanks everyone for listening.
0: Thank you for your time. Bye. Bye.